Our passage of scripture this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4. It's going to be verses 14, 15, and 16. We're going to slow down and we're going to pay attention to these passages of scripture, these three verses of scripture, because what we're reading this morning acts, acts a little bit like a pivot point into the rest of the book. In a lot of ways, the next several chapters, chapters 5 through 10, comprise the heart of the argument of the book of Hebrews. And these three verses act as a hinge point, taking us from one side to the other. So in order to get us from one point in the book to another point in the book, the author densely packs packs these three verses with some incredible information about what it means for Jesus to be God among us. So the things that we're going to read, it's just beautiful, it's powerful, it's dense stuff. One step right after the other, everything important and critical for us in our understanding of Jesus Christ. But as we move our way into that passage, I want us very quickly to recall the very last thing that we heard in the book of Hebrews. Last week we dealt with a few verses ending with verses 12 and 13 about the power and the work of the Word of God itself. So let's reread those verses. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It is this vivid and incredible passage about the kind of power that only the Word of God has. So swords can hack people to pieces. Scalpels can dissect the human body and we can see physically what is inside of the human body. But the Word of God is a different kind of device. Swords and scalpels cannot dissect or open up the human soul or the human spirit, but the Word of God can. And so it dissects us there at our very core and lays us open before God, the one to whom we all must give account. It lays us open to the great divine physician, the only one who can heal what really needs to be done in the human heart. As we work through that passage and we realize that the Word of God has the power to lay bare all of my thoughts and my intentions, and the Creator of the universe, the Judge of all humanity, sees everything about me. When we truly come face to face with that truth, that can actually be a little bit off-putting, a little bit frightening. I don't even understand all of the thoughts and intentions of my heart, and yet God does. So that moment is is powerful. It's promising, but it's frightening in some ways. But the very next thing the writer says is that we are not left alone in that moment. So we learn some incredible things about Jesus Christ in these next few verses. And the first is this, that Jesus is our great high priest. The priests of the Old Testament were designed and built and given commands by God in order to facilitate worship, to make sure the people of God had a functioning temple and sacrificial system. They worked in order to bring the people of God closer to God himself. But as we discover through the next couple of chapters of Hebrews, the priesthood is full of all kinds of inherent, inevitable problems. But because we need a great high priest, we need a perfect 
divine high priest. So we learn in this passage that Jesus becomes our great high priest. We also learn that Jesus is God with us. Now, we spend a lot of time with this thought on Christmas, but we see it again here from another perspective, what it means for Jesus to be with us. And we understand specifically in this passage that Jesus isn't just some kind of transcendent spiritual being who is forever disconnected from us and from our plight, but instead, Jesus lived this human life yet without sin. This is part of what it means for Jesus to be God with us. And then we also see this this morning, that Jesus makes it possible for us to go straight to the throne of grace. It's an incredible thing that Jesus makes possible for every one of his children. Friends, because of who he is and what he did, you and I have direct access to the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you're looking for a passage of Scripture to, to memorize and stick in your heart and in your head, this, this, you really couldn't do much better than these three verses. Memorize these things. Let them roll over and over again in your heart and mind and in your prayer life. So let's read these. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This passage of Scripture, it represents a handful of themes that the author is going to expand for us over the next several chapters. This middle section of the book, which in a lot of ways really does act as sort of the lodestar, the, the heart of this book. And then on the other side of that section, these ideas are so important to what the writer wants to put across to us, he reminds us of these same ideas. So in Hebrews chapter 10, these same things that we just read here show up again, but now in expanded form because between chapters 5 and 10, the writer of Hebrews is, has introduced all sorts of new ideas and realities to all these things that we've read about Jesus. And then when he comes back to them later in chapter 10, it's an expanded set of thoughts. So let's read that in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23. We will hear echoes of what we just read in chapter 4. He says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is beautiful stuff, and this is critical stuff. These are things that are right at the very core 
of what it means for me to believe in, to put my trust in Jesus Christ. Guys, in in a culture that is just filled with misinformation about Jesus, misinformation about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, these kinds of passages are absolutely critical for you and for me. I was reminded of this even just, I think it was yesterday. Heather and I are on this app called, it's Neighborhood or something like that, and it's a little bit like Facebook for people who live near to you. And I'm not sure if I like that or not, but it's Facebook for people who live in your neighborhood. Someone posted something, they were looking for a Bible study, a place where they could draw near to Jesus Christ. So that was kind of fun. So I type a response, I send some information, and just almost immediately I see another response. Someone else says, well, as a matter of fact, Jesus said you're supposed to do this and you're supposed to do this and the church will never help you do any of that. And all of it was wrong. It was just misinformation, a misunderstanding, a misreading, a set of frustrations and anger that came out of this guy when someone just said, is there a good Bible study nearby? Our culture is filled misinformation about Jesus Christ. So this kind of stuff is important for us to understand. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what is now made possible for you and for me, for anybody, because of those things about Jesus Christ? So the text says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God. You and I have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. The priests in the Old Testament were a group of individuals. In fact, they were one of the tribes of Israel this century that filled a critical role in the life of the people of God. The priests in the Old Testament were designed by God and their lives were created and organized by God so that they could facilitate worship and sacrifice, so that they could run the temple in a sacrificial system. As people would make their pilgrimages to the temple, the priests would facilitate that. And it wasn't just at the temple in the city of Jerusalem. When you pay attention to the Old Testament, God scattered the Levites all over the countryside so that no matter where you lived, you were close to a family family of priests who could help facilitate worship, who could help that sacrificial system, and who were also tasked with making sure the people of God were clear about who God was, about what God demanded, what his commands were like, and what it meant to actually follow him in this life. But the priesthood, and the writer of Hebrews is going to spend some significant time on this, the priesthood has a critical flaw. Every single priest is human. No matter how good any individual priest might be, that priest is still a human being riddled with sin and brokenness. No matter how old that priest gets and runs their job, that priest eventually dies. They are a mortal human being. So nothing that the priests were tasked to do could be finished in perfection. So what you and I need is a perfect divine high priest. And that role is filled by only one individual, and that is Jesus Christ. All these things the priests stood for, all these things the priests were designed to do and could do a little bit, only Jesus can do perfectly. It's what we need, so Jesus fills this role. Guys, as the text puts it, 
This is our great high priest who has come from the throne of God, who has lived among us as the, uh, the creeds put it and we dealt with a few months ago, fully God and fully man among us. And he has now gone back into the heavens, into the presence of God and into his perfect eternity. Jesus Christ is the only one who completes this cycle of divine perfection human brokenness, and our eternal representative before God. He's the only one who does this. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Listen to how Paul talks about the role of Jesus, our great high priest. Now, as a matter for all of eternity in the presence of God himself, here's part of what the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is doing. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 put it like this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You see, the assumed answer to that is no one can do it. It is God who justifies. Who can condemn? Again, the answer is no one can condemn. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, in, who indeed is interceding for us. We have a great high priest who is always advocating for you before the throne of God. Isn't this incredible about who Jesus is and what he has done? And the author at this moment decides that this is critical to our faith. So the author makes sure that we recognize the importance of hanging on to the confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hang on to the things that we know to be true about Jesus Christ because these things are absolutely necessary to my salvation. They're absolutely necessary to whatever healing and transformation needs to happen inside of this life and these lives. These things are true. So let us hang on to these things. I love this because Jesus is our great high priest and has ascended back into eternal divine glory, you and I need to make sure that we are confident in our faith in Jesus Christ. Recognize this, guys. We need to make sure that we say this kind of thing from time to time. Christians have no good reason to change their beliefs about Jesus' salvation and all that he does for us. Christians have no good reason to change their beliefs about the truth of who Jesus is, what salvation means, and what he has done for us. Now, I use that phrase on purpose, not just because it's a common phrase, but I use it on purpose. We have no good reason to change our, change our confession. There are a lot of really bad reasons to let go of our faith. There are no good reasons to let go of our faith. Guys, recognize this. This is part of the the larger story that the author of Hebrews is telling us, we need to recognize, guys, that Jesus has already won. 
We're not waiting to see who comes out on top in the end. We're not waiting to see whose kingdom is more powerful than the other guy's kingdom. Jesus has already won. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, you and I live in the day-to-day battle. You and I live in the tension. You and I live in the confusion. You and I live sometimes moving forward, sometimes moving backwards, sometimes standing still. That's the world in which we live, but we belong to the one who has already conquered all of that. We belong to the one who's already conquered death. We belong to the one to whom all of human history is moving. All of it will culminate in Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Why would I let go of that? There's no place else for me to hang on to except onto Jesus Christ. Why would I let go? But we've learned, as we've been attentive through this book, and we'll continue to see, that the author is worried that I will. He's worried that whatever stresses and pressures the Christians that read this originally face, he's worried that they're going to decide it's going to be easier if I just let go. It's going to be easier in my life somehow if I just begin to neglect my faith. I step back just a little bit and maybe I allow this in or this in or I allow the culture to be right here or here even when it contradicts my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to start letting go. The author of Hebrews is concerned that that's exactly what we're going to do. So he stops in the middle of this passage and says again, don't let go. We have no good reason to. It just is the fact that, friends, Christians are going to face opposition in this world. This is a a spiritual battle in many ways that we are involved in. And when we belong to Jesus Christ, the enemy is just going to throw opposition at us from time to time. And it's going to look different for every single one of us. The enemy is going to try to find ways to make it difficult for you to be a Christian in public. For you to stick up, to stick out, and to sound and look and speak differently because you belong to Jesus Christ. We're just going to face opposition because of that. But guys, remember this. The faith that we confess is the faith that can save even those who oppose us. It's not just a faith that that saves us, that we know that we are saved because of our, our faith in Jesus Christ and all he's done for us. We need to see the world through the lens of the faith that I belong to is the faith that can save them too. Why would I let go of that? Now, if you faced opposition, you know that that opposition often comes with confidence. Sometimes it comes with arrogance and sometimes even with aggression. Those who oppose the way of Jesus are often confident in their opposition to the way of Jesus. But again, we need to see that they, in fact, are deceived by their enemy, the one who is trying to destroy their souls. And over and over again, we see this. If you're attentive to this kind of thing, it happens far more often than it should happen. And it should break our hearts from time to time. There are individuals, there are individual churches, there are entire denominations who have just decided, you know what? The culture is right, 
and God is wrong. So in order to make things easier for us, in order to maybe draw more people into the pews, in order to do whatever it is, I'm going to go ahead and let go of my faith and I'm going to hang on to what culture is telling me is true about life and on and on the story goes. But guys, I, I, keep, I, I ran across this question. I, I formulated this question for myself years ago and it's a question that I keep coming back to and I want to lay before you as well. Why on earth would the church accept falsehoods that corrupt saving faith in order to curry favor with those who hate the church anyway? Why would the church accept falsehoods that corrupt saving faith in order to curry favor with those who hate the church anyway? Why not, instead of that, learn how to be confident even as the book of Acts says over and over and over again, they were bold in their faith. Why not learn how to be confident in our faith? Why not, instead of letting go of it, learn how to communicate our faith well? Why not learn how our faith actually affects every aspect of life for good? Sometimes the, the weakest faith is the thinnest faith. It's the shallowest faith. We just barely have a grasp on it. We, we don't really understand what is possible because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so when some kind of pushback comes, it's actually easy for us to let go. But instead of letting go, guys, think of kneading dough. What you should do is you take your fingers and you just dump them in there and you need and you need and you need and you learn everything that is possible because of faith in Jesus Christ and what it does for us and you hang on and don't let go. Why not learn how to love people with truth? This is the role of the church of Jesus Christ in a culture that's going the other direction in so many ways. I've been reading through a wonderful book called The Book That Made Your World. I'm going to try the author's name, Vishal Mangalwadi. Did I get close? All right. It's a magnificent book. And here's part of what he says about what happens because of the Christian faith. Be that as it may, Nietzsche's critique was correct that the Bible has been the greatest humanizing force in history. Nietzsche is a, a weird figure. This, this is not a positive thing. You shouldn't go read and become a disciple of Nietzsche. But the point is that the Bible has been the greatest humanizing force in history. It drove the movement for the abolition of slavery and promoted care for the weak, such as widows, orphans, the handicapped, and leprosy patients, from liberating and rehabilitation, re, the rehabilitation of temple prostitutes to reforming prisons and bringing sanity to morality and wars. The biblical tradition has been the most powerful civilizing force. That's the faith that you and I belong to. Why not dig deeper into this thing? Why not become a part of that instead of just letting all of that go? Let us hold fast to our confession because of all that Jesus is. So guys, we should never lose our confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ. And we can't confuse. This is an interesting movement inside of this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the Son of God, he's ascended back into the heavenlies. And so the writer wants to make sure that we, we get something right here. 
because we can't confuse his eternal perfection in heaven with some kind of deity who is eternally disconnected from the human condition. A God who has never been here, a God who has never involved himself inside of our lives, that's not who Jesus is. So the writer of the text says something absolutely fascinating next. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Now, again, that's language that we spend a lot of time on when it comes to Christmas and the images that come with Christmas because this is one of the outworkings of that truth. This is one of the corollaries to that reality that our great high priest Jesus, who is eternal in the heavens, ever interceding for his children, walked in this flesh and experienced temptation, as the writer says, in every respect like you and I have. With one significant difference, he did all of it without sin. Guys, this is actual physical identification with the humans God intends to save. This is actual, get this, psychological identification with the humans that God intends to save. So God does not initiate a plan of salvation from divine glory, toss it down to us, and stay there. His plan of salvation actually involves an all-out invasion of our territory with His Son, Jesus Christ. So He, in His fullness and perfection, enters this world. It's a powerful thing. So again, as the creeds have put it, and we talked about a few months ago, Jesus Christ, we understand to be, and we have a ch- as a church have confessed this for almost 2,000 years now, That Jesus, while he was here, was fully God and fully man. Now, we may not be able to tease out every one of those things and explain exactly what all of that means, but nonetheless, it is the truth about Jesus. Tempted like we are, but Jesus remains sinless. Again, this is a critical part of the Christian faith. Okay, when we confess this to be true, we immediately say Jesus is not just another religious leader. He's not just a wonderful human being who attains some form of enlightenment. We're not talking about that kind of person. We're talking about God in flesh, the one unique individual who fits this description. And so he's tempted, yet without sin. So I want to make sure we understand this, at least just a little bit. Temptation and sin. What are the differences between temptation and sin? The first thing we need to understand is is that temptation and sin are not the same thing. Temptation is the presence of a possibility. Sin is giving into it in a way in which it breaks God's command, in a way in in which it it, uh, goes against the will or the law of God. Temptation is the presence of that possibility. Sin is the giving into it. Temptation is the presence of the cookie on the shelf. Sin is not eating that cookie. I'm just making sure you guys are with me, okay? But you understand the difference. 
The presence of a possibility versus giving into it, actually engaging either in thought or in body. So, guys, we understand this about temptation. Our world is full of things that would tempt us away from God. So there's a way in which temptation comes from the outside in. It's just in our world around us. And oftentimes what it means for us to learn how to avoid sin or stop sin is to disconnect ourselves physically or visually or psychologically from those kinds of things so that we try to get rid of those outside-in temptations. But there's another kind of temptation that wells up from inside of the heart of sinful human beings. Sometimes even without the physical presence of those things, the temptation rises up from within us. But it is possible to experience temptation and not sin, not give in. The dominant example of this, when we speak especially of Jesus, experiencing temptation yet without sin, we have one very specific moment in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 4 is an example of that. The first 12 or 13 verses or so is just called in your Bibles the temptation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you begin to read that passage, the temptation of Jesus begins with this. Now, get this. It says, the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And we have those three famous moments in which Jesus is tempted with turning a stone into bread or throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. The third temptation, the devil says, now if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And and in every event, Jesus counters the temptation with the word of God and he doesn't give in to temptation. He doesn't sin when faced with temptation. Now when you and I think about how temptation works, We often think of temptation in some of its more graphic forms, some of its more headline-grabbing forms. Lust, greed, cruelty, and on the list goes. And when prominent people fall into those, it literally makes headlines. Now, those things are temptations. And we can be drawn into sin because of those kinds of things. But temptation, we need to recognize this, hits the human heart in far more subtle ways than that. One of the temptations that Jesus faced after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, it says he was hungry. The devil says, why don't you make yourself some food? And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. That's a lot more subtle than worship me. Well, of course I'm not going to worship you. You're the devil. (laughs) Why don't you make bread? But you see, in that moment, Jesus would have been disobeying God and he would have been obeying the devil. Sometimes it's overt and obvious, but a lot of times it's a lot more subtle than that. So guys, we are presented, he says, tempted in every respect, which which means that you and I face these things all the time as well. We are presented either from the outside in or the inside out, ways to disobey God, ways to harm our neighbor, but sin happens when we give in, either inwardly or outwardly. A pastor I used to work with years ago, a wonderful wise man, Pastor Earl Waugh, I still remember a sermon he gave on temptation because of the illustration that he used. He said, you can't keep the crows from from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. So there you go. If that's the only thing you remember from this, so be it. (laughs) It's going to happen. 
But there are going to be ways for us to actually face it and not give in to sin. But the point eventually about this passage of Scripture, who our perfect, great, eternal, divine high priest is, is the same one who entered this world and faced all of that and never sinned. Jesus experienced the same kind of temptation in every respect like we do, but never slid into sin. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, was the only sinless human being. And this is a necessary truth to our salvation. You see, guys, on the cross, Jesus was the only human who did not deserve punishment for his sin. Yet he goes to the cross to pay the price for my sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, Scripture says. This is Jesus, our great high priest. Let us then, with confidence, approach the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace to help in a hard time of need. Here's what we get to do because of that. Here's what's available to us because of that. Guys, what Jesus, our sinless high priest, has accomplished for sinners in need of grace is beyond comprehension. In the world in which they lived, the religious world in which Jesus' original disciples and the early church originally lived, the act of going to the priests, the, the local pagan priests, the act of making your way into a temple or into the presence of that particular false idol, it's shrouded in ceremony, it's shrouded in levels of Access. It's shrouded in levels of things you can and cannot do because of your own sin. There was one particular um, Roman god, the bull god, and it was a very popular cult among the elites in Rome. And the only way in which you could gain access to that god is to be drenched in the blood of a slaughtered bull, right? All of these levels of attainment and ceremony, you only get so far in. In that world... The author tells followers of Jesus Christ, we don't need that. Because of Jesus, we can confidently go straight to God. And it wasn't just the pagan religions around them. Remember, the writer of this book is writing to a group of converted Christians who were Hebrews. So they were brought up inside of the Jewish system and the way that the temple worked. And the temple in Jerusalem is a kind of architecture of worship. Right at the very middle is the smallest room. It's called the Holy of Holies. And the conception of that room is that that is where the presence of God sat. And as you move out from that smallest room, the rooms get bigger and bigger until you have outdoor courtyards because most people could only get as close as the outer courtyard. They're out here, but they physically can't make it here into the presence of God. Even fewer, those who happen to be practicing Jewish males, can make it into the next courtyard, but they still can't get close to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. 
Only certain priests could go then into the altar room, right, into the holy place and perform these sacrifices and these ceremonies. Only they could get this close, but only one person once a year can make it into the holy of holies, the high priest. See, they're built in this system where I can only get so close to God. The high priest is my representative in the Holy of Holies, but I can't get there. Listen to what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ at the moment of his death in Matthew 27. It says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit the moment of his death on the cross. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain is what separated the Holy of Holies from every place else. From top to bottom, the hand of God tears that thing apart and grants access to his presence through our great and sinless high priest, Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus is. This access to God is the access that brings us the life that we need, that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. When we read this and we think about what it means to approach God in our time of need, we immediately think of bringing those needs and complications and problems to God for His solution and His power, and that's absolutely the case. We should always do that to take what is our need before God, for he is the only one who can do what only God can do with our need. But this is also, notice this, the throne of God in this passage of Scripture is called the throne of grace. This is the place where we find the gift of the presence and the power of God. Do you long for a life that is full of Christ? Instead of living in the prison of your own brokenness, you have access to the throne of grace. Do you long for it? Man, I hope you do. Do you long for the power of God and the Holy Spirit to be the dominant influences in your heart and mind, to be the dominant influences inside of your family, in your home? to be the dominant influences in your thought and speech and education and vocation, you and I have access to the throne of grace. I love this. The throne of God that is His symbol of His omnipotence and of His sovereignty, the righteous eternal perfections of God symbolized there in the throne of God is a throne of grace. This is the grace that is given to us in salvation. Guys, our only means of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Here's part of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other human being who can accomplish this. There is no other human being who is the sinless, eternal, great high priest. No one. So how is there access to the Father for the saving of this soul? It's through Jesus Christ. So this is the grace that's given to us in salvation. This is the grace of God at work in our time 
of need. Paul, while he is in prison, he writes to the Philippians, and he says this in chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the grace of God at work in our time of need. And guys, this is the grace of God that continues to give us life. Again, back in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer to that question is, well, nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let us with confidence approach the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. If that is available to us, why not take advantage of that? If that is available to me, why would I ignore that? Why would I neglect it? Why would I just let it go? <laughs> it's like living in the desert with constant access to living water. Why wouldn't I drink? With confidence, we can go to the throne of grace. Guys, what are my prayer habits like? What is the attention of my soul like when I read Scripture, attend church, go about my daily life through prayer? Can I do it with at least one eye open to the grace and the mercy of God that is eternally and forever and constantly present because of Jesus Christ? So let us, friends, pull close to God. Several times in the Old Testament when God speaks to his people through his prophets, he says, if they draw near to me, I will draw near to them. God has made the way open to us. So we need to learn to walk through that door, to find the grace of God, and to find the mercy that only he can give and that we need in our time of need. Let's pray.